Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Gavin Cooper. I'm the youth minister here at St. Mark's. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, I do look forward to meeting you outside. I believe there's pizza on its way again for us this evening, so please catch me if we haven't yet met. Well, for generations, the Thorns had been a family of tremendous wealth, position and power. The perfect marriage of Ambassador Thorne and his wife, Catherine, was fulfilled by the birth of their son, Damien. Then, when the child was five years old, something terrible happened. Was it an accident? Was it murder? Was it a coincidence? Or was it an omen? These words are from the transcript of the trailer of the, for the 1976 fictional cult thriller The Omen, starring no other than Gregory Peck. The boy mentioned, Damien, was switched at birth without his mother's knowledge. And, well, while I don't want to give uh, too much away, terrible things began to happen around the life of this child. First of all, raise of hands, has anyone seen the movie, the 1976 version? Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks. Okay, a couple of people. Uh, so mysterious deaths start to occur around the family. The child himself has a violent reaction when his family takes him near to a church. Bloodthirsty Rottweilers randomly appear to protect Damien, and a visit to a zoo shows other wild animals are petrified to be near the boy. As the plot unfolds, it's found out that the child is in fact the son of the devil, the Antichrist. You see, for many generations, the concept of an antichrist has piqued the interest of writers, of filmmakers, and of musicians. TV shows like Supernatural, movies like The Omen, one, two, and three, and the remake, uh, Terry Pratchett novels, and even a Marilyn Manson album title. A Google search for the term antichrist, here's where you know it gets dangerous, reveals a number of alleged contenders who have emerged throughout the time of history. Amongst them, we have Emperor Nero, Joseph Stalin, Osama bin Laden, Friedrich Nietzsche, and of course, one of Nietzsche's greatest fans, Adolf Hitler. Perhaps not to our surprise, I even found a few sources stating that the Antichrist had recently taken up residence in the White House. I'm not sure who that was. And so we come to this section of 1 John tonight, and it's become obvious that John is very intent on his readers being warned of the Antichrist, or indeed Antichrists, plural, as we open the text, along with the work and the dangers of heretics in and amongst the church. In tonight's passage, John gives us three points to consider. First, he draws a clear distinction between heretics and genuine Christians. Secondly, he demonstrates the nature and effect of heresy, or if you will, alternate facts, leading to a dangerously false understanding of who Christ Jesus was. And lastly, he provides us with two great defences against such heresy. And so before we unpack these three components, will you please join me as I pray? Our gracious Father, through the power of your Spirit, will you enable me only to speak your words? Father, through the power of your Spirit, will you enable us to only hear your truth? Open our hearts and minds and be uh, ever ready to hear your word and to apply it to life. Amen. John begins this statement, this passage, sorry, with a statement that appears perhaps as either being straight out wrong or at best misleading. Hopefully you've got the, your Bibles open in front of you. If you haven't now, shamelessly open it quickly. Uh, in verse 18, we see the statement saying, children, 
It is the last hour. Now, looking at this, <clears throat> excuse me, looking at this, some readers reached the conclusion that John was just simply mistaken in writing the statement. <clears throat> After all, 1900 years is a long last hour. Uh, but this understanding comes from an unhelpfully narrow uh, reading of the Bible. John's declaration isn't giving us a chronological reference that you can set your watch to, but rather is a reference to a theological meaning. In biblical theology, as we look at the whole message of the Bible unfolding, language such as the last days and the final hour crop up all the time. But these phrases need to be understood in terms of God's overall plan. This letter from John is likely written within a few decades of Jesus' death and resurrection. And it's these events, the life, the ministry, the death and the resurrection of Jesus that mark the beginning of what the Bible calls the last days. And so it's with valid urgency that John encourages his readers to be on guard in what he now calls not just the last days, but the last hour. <clears throat> He's reached this understanding when he writes the last hour because, look with me in verse 18, many, many antichrists have come, and from this we know that it is the last hour. The word antichrist or antichristos in the Greek actually only appears four times in the New Testament. It's a noun that can either mean one who is against Christ or one who is taking the place of Christ. Regardless of which translation we want to work with, the fundamental meaning is the same. An antichrist is one who is set out to undermine and oppose the work of the true Christ. He is an adversary to Christ. While John was the only writer to use this word, the concept of an antichrist has echoes right throughout the entire Bible as it unfolds. Uh, probably most famously in the Old Testament, we have uh, the, the book of Daniel. In Daniel 7, we explore an awe-inspiring vision of the end times. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to, to go through uh, Daniel. As part of this, we hear of the little horn, a little horn that has a mouth that speaks against God the Most High. In Daniel 8, we hear of a king who will, raise, uh, who will rise and cause fearful destruction. Daniel 11 speaks further of a king who will speak many things against God, the God of gods. Turning to the New Testament, in 2 Thessalonians, Paul describes a man of lawlessness, a son of destruction, one who proclaims himself to be God. <clears throat> And so the original readers of 1 John were well aware that the Antichrist figure was to be expected. And here John states that while the Antichrist is still yet to come, many Antichrists are already here. And we can be assured that if they were there then, they are here now today. Verse 19, John states that they, that is the Antichrists, went out from us. He continued and says, but they didn't belong to us. How does he know that? Well, if they belonged to us, that is, if they truly belonged as part of the church, John says, they would have remained with us. But instead, by going out, they made it pl plain and clear that none of them belonged to us. That is, if they don't belong to us, then they belong to someone else. As we can see already, John has been very clear in establishing one thing, that there is us and there is them. Now, given the intended audience, 
uh, to whom he's writing, it's pretty clear that the us is the church, the Christians, those who confess faith in the Son of God who has, who has been risen. Those who, verse 21, know the truth. Those who know that no lie comes from the truth. And so this also answers the opposite question. If us is the Christians, who is the they? The they, although they came from within the church, are those who do not hold on to the truth. Those who, in verse 22, deny that Jesus is the Christ. John continues, This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Both Paul and John warn their readers about one who is to come, an Antichrist, a man of lawlessness. But John also tells us that the spirit of the Antichrist is already here amongst us, doing its work within our world. John's warning here is to be alert for any teaching that proclaims that Jesus is anything other than the Son of God, anything less than God himself who miraculously poured himself, poured his glory into the form of a man and became human, anything less than he who is, a being, who is 100% a human being and 100% divine at the same time, he who died a brutal physical death on a Roman cross, and he who rose again from the dead and ascended to be with the Father. Any teaching, any teaching that declares Jesus to be anything less than that is, as John says, not the truth, but is a lie. Secondly, John, he continues by discussing what's at stake here. Verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. Verse 25, and this is what he has promised, eternal life. God's promise to us is that by grace, through faith, we will receive eternal life. This understanding of Jesus is the only pathway to salvation and any accurate reading of the gospel can only and will only ever reach this conclusion. Almost 2,000 years ago, John wrote to churches who were being plagued by false teaching. Teachers who rose up even then, so soon after Jesus has lived, to deny the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection, denying that he truly was the Son of God. Exactly 500 years ago, as Erica was explaining earlier, the great reformer Martin Luther rose up to challenge the Roman Catholic understanding of salvation, an understanding, an understanding that we might call Jesus plus. Luther stood against the idea that uh, the work of Christ wasn't quite enough for our salvation and we needed to do things in, ad in addition to his work. Skip to now. The Muslim community read in Surah 4 of the Quran that Jesus was somehow swapped out while he was on the cross, that Allah deceived the people and rose Jesus to heaven from the cross before he had to even die. Today, Buddhists freely adopt the idea of Jesus into their own plethora of gods, figuring that, well, they like the idea of Jesus' teaching, so we should just add him to our collection, picking and choosing the teachings that they want, picking and choosing the teachings that appeal to them. Today, Christians domesticate Jesus into what suits our worldview too. 
we reshape the gospel to suit the life we want to lead, fearing that we will otherwise miss out on what life could have, could have to offer. Or perhaps even worse, we hear teachings from the Bible which are distorted. We hear the truth from the Bible adapted to what our intolerant world wants to hear. And if our hearts and minds are not firmly, deeply rooted in the actual truth of God's word, we listen, we hear, and our itching ears accept. John's warnings remind us to be on guard against our natural tendency to water down the gospel, to belt it into shape, a shape that suits us. You see, the truth of God's word is, in many contexts, outright offensive. The church today is constantly confronted with hateful attacks against what it holds to be truth. The world labels us as bigots and pressures us to bend to their will, pushing for us to add just just a splash of 21st century convenience to our convictions, to get with the times, to stop trying to apply such an ancient book to the year 2017. The world begs us to do this, but it does so and it has no idea of the cost. Antichrists and heretics existed in John's day and they equally exist here and now today. But thirdly, John provides us with two defences against these heresies, against these lies. John's advice to his readers then is the same as the advice we need to hear today. In verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. To be, <clears throat> to be protected from swaying to false teaching, we need to let God's truth abide within us. John wants the truth about Christ to pump through our heart, mind, body and spirit, just as the very blood goes through our veins. Well, it's a great privilege uh, to share the gospel with youth and children here at St. Mark's. And it was actually only last Sunday that one of our youngest church members came up to me with almost uncontainable excitement. She came up to me and she said proudly, Gavin, I know what the Bible stands for. I did my best to not look confused and urged her to continue. Little Audrey then explained, Bible, B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. I'll give you a second. Yep. Well, I was understandably very impressed and I can assure you she was equally proud of herself. But I got to thinking later, while referring to the Bible as a great instruction book on life is a great starting point for a small child, it's not even halfway to the mark. You see, we're not all well-behaved five-year-old little Audreys who follow instructions diligently. Instead, we're 21st, Australian, 21st century Australians who will, by and large, so I've seen, do anything we can to avoid reaching for the instruction book in the first place. Instruction manuals are great at answering our questions about the subject they're written about. But we typically need especially in our Australian context, we typically need to be in over our head before we pull the book out and give it its chance to speak to us. But God's living and breathing word is much, much more. 
much more than an instruction manual. If we ever only open the Bible to seek God's answer to our questions, we never actually allow him to tell us what he needs to tell us, to tell us what we need to hear. At SNBC this past week, our principal, Stuart Coulton, gave his final address to a room full of graduating students. His message was called The Last Words and was, in a sense, the principal's marching orders to a group of gospel workers who were about to head out and engage in all kinds of different ministries. Within his address, he gave this Timothy Timothy Keller quote. We tend to think of the Bible as a book of answers to our questions. And it is that. However, if we really let the text speak, we may find that God will show us that we're not even asking the right questions. Friends, are we opening God's word? Are we allowing it to abide within us enough that we can at least know something of the truth that God wants us to hear? As you can see above me, I just had to check it's still up there, our sermon series for 1 John is titled Remain in Light. And I think this is a critical concept for us to have in mind at all times. You see, in a world of darkness, turning to the Bible only to ask it the questions and seek the answers that we think we need is like turning on a torch and just pointing it in one corner of the room. But by drenching ourselves, absorbing the word of God, we have the opportunity to switch on the light switch that will flood the entire room, the entire world with light. Here at St Mark's, we're blessed to have a daily devotional program written by Michael Jensen himself. Each morning, Monday to Friday, this allows us to receive a short 10 to 15 minute Bible reading, including an explanation and prayer straight to our inbox. I've personally lost count of how many people, both inside St Mark's and outside, who have told me how much of an invaluable tool that has proven to be for them in their life. It's an, and I quote, an easy, bite-sized way to take a small slither of time out of our busy day to invest in God's word. And if you're not already receiving that, I encourage you, in in the seats in front of you, there should be a contact card. Grab that out find a pen or a pencil, give us your email address. We won't spam you. All we'll give you is uh, once every day uh, one of those devotionals that I just described. They're invaluable. They're incredibly helpful to kick off your day with. But tonight, I want to push us just a little bit further than that. John has been very deliberate with his wording here. He's not saying to simply just dip our toes in the edge of the pool and in God's truth. Verse 24 again says, let the truth abide in you. Abide. This isn't a simple instruction to read your Bible. John wants us to live, breathe, sweat, cry, and even bleed the words of God. Through Christ, we have the priceless gift of hope in an otherwise hopeless world. A hope which is based on an internally unchanging truth. A hope which, despite the fleeting interest that our worldly minds, uh, that come to our worldly minds, remains the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. You may know what that hope is, but I wonder if you truly let yourself be immersed in what that hope is. Immersed in that truth. Does that truth identify you? Is that what you seek to live for? 
Some practical ways of throwing yourself more and more into God's word might be to join one of our Connect Group Bible studies. You can chat to any one of our staff tonight about, about those groups and we'll happily help you find a group that will suit you. Maybe it's a little bit more than that. Maybe this week you need to make the bold move of finding a friend from work or school and open the Bible together in your lunch break. Even just once a week, open God's word, read a couple of verses, and let his truth speak to you. Verse 24 continues. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he has promised, eternal life. Through Christ, we have the hope of eternal life. If this isn't a truth that you've come to understand yet, I encourage you to grab a Bible and read one of the four Gospels. Mark's nice and short. You might want to start there. Luke's nice and detailed. If you're a details kind of person, maybe head for Luke. Open it for yourself and see how the Word of God, the truth of God's Gospel applies to you. Maybe you've read it. And maybe you find yourself having doubts about the claims that Jesus had. I would encourage you then, grab a copy of this book. If you can't read it from there, it's called The Case for Christ. It was written by Lee Strobel. It's a great read and it follows the sceptical path of a journalist who, determined to be the correct husband, went to disprove the newfound belief of his wife and in the end, spoiler alert, finds out he cannot disprove the facts of the, of the Christian faith. If you're out there and you, you think of Jesus as just being a teacher, if you can't possibly grasp the idea that he came back to life, that he died, and all of the events that we hold fast to as Christians. Grab a hold of this book. If you're not the book kind, it's just come out as a movie, and it does a pretty good job of telling the story, so you might want to go that path instead. But wherever you are tonight, I invite you to take the next step in letting God's word speak to you just a little bit more, from wherever you are to a little bit more. And it's my prayer for each of you to have a never-ending, unquenchable thirst to dive deeper and deeper into the truth of Jesus and to therefore remain spiritually protected in his great light. Let me pray. Our loving Father, you have given us your light. You have given us your Son. May we be ever thirsting to drench ourselves to have your word abide in us, to have your truth abide in us and identify us. May every word we speak, every action we take and every thought we have come from your word, come from having a life that is filled with your truth. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.